It may be that humanity has unconsciously willed this um, extremely dangerous uh, threshold uh, that threatens us with extinction in order to bring about a, a mass initiation. That's Daniel Pinchbeck this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. My name's Rich Roll. I am your host. This is my podcast. Thanks for spending some time with me today. So each week, I sit down with the best and the brightest, the most paradigm-breaking minds across all categories of life, health, spirituality, athleticism, fitness, and excellence, always excellence, to hopefully illuminate and inform your path, your journey. And if today's guest is anything, uh, he definitely fits the bill when it comes to challenging traditional paradigms. His name is Daniel Pinchbeck, and uh, I'm pretty excited to introduce him to you guys here today. So I first became aware of Daniel, I believe it was, well, I know it was uh, when I read his, his book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Um, I think I read it back in 2011. It's a pretty fascinating book, kind of a mind bender. It's a study of prophecy and very, very interesting. And then I uh, heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast, and that just kind of deepened my interest in, in what he does. He's a very hyper-intelligent uh, personality, quite philosophical, quite introspective on a wide variety of topics like religion, spirituality, global consciousness, community, environmental awareness, Mayanism, shamanism, consumerism, commerce, art, technology, and maybe most notably the mandate for new economic and thought paradigms. And he's got a really interesting background. Uh, he grew up in the East Village in New York City, and uh, he is the son of Beat Generation parents. His mother actually dated Jack Kerouac around the time that he uh, was coming out with his, uh, his book, On the Road. And so his roots in the New York City counterculture movement run really deep. But in his late 20s, he fell into what he characterizes as a deep spiritual crisis, a crisis that led him towards the study of shamanism. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, that Daniel really has solidified himself as a leading pioneer in this postmodern psychedelic movement, advocating uh, the expansion of consciousness through exploration of shamanism and substances like ayahuasca, aboga, DMT, and the like. And he's authored several books, of course, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, but also uh, a book called Breaking Open the Head and some other ones. And as a journalist, He's pretty prolific. He's written for Esquire, The New York Times Magazine, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, Dazed and Confused. He's appeared on The Colbert Report, and he's uh, also very involved in, in counterculture movements and festivals like Burning Man. He's the founder of a, a website called Evolver.net, and I could go on and on. He's done quite a few things. But let me say this. I have a confession. I have to admit that I had a little bit of trepidation about talking to Daniel uh, as his interest and his experiences in the mystical, mysterious worlds of, of shamanism and, and psychedelia are something that I have no direct personal experience with. Um, of course, I have friends who have, and I have friends who have benefited from such experiences. So I certainly don't dismiss them. It's just that as a sober person in recovery, uh, I'm not sure I will ever explore these things myself, and I'm not sure they are endeavors that I can recommend. But I am cognizant and acknowledging the fact that uh, many people have benefited from these kinds of experiences. So 
Daniel has a prodigious literary mind, and uh, a second confession is that I admit to being a little intimidated (laughs) by Daniel's substantial intellect and a little unsure about whether interviewing him for this podcast would be a good idea or maybe even appropriate for this show. But I was in New York City, and through our mutual friend, Stephen Cesarini, uh, the opportunity sort of spontaneously arose to do this, and it was something that I just couldn't imagine passing up. And I'm really glad that I didn't. So much like my Tipper X conversation, uh, this podcast marks a little bit of new terrain for me, and it's a bit of a departure from my typical rotation, rotunda of guests, but it's a pretty fascinating deep dive into ideas and modalities around new consciousness, political and economic movements. And there's also a lot of things that we bring up, a lot of URLs and and books, et cetera, that we discuss. And so definitely you're going to want to go to the show notes uh, and the resources on the episode page for this uh, podcast at richroll.com. So if you're inspired or intrigued by the conversation, there'll be plenty uh, for you to explore and take the conversation a little bit deeper. So let's go down the rabbit hole. I know I've said that again, but I think for once, this phrase carries a little bit more of a literal meaning uh, and expand our minds through the consciousness of Daniel Fleabag. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health from fermented food, to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, 
gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. (laughs) Setting the space. Thanks, man. Hey, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for, uh, for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are, uh, we'll set the stage. We're in a church right now that has been converted into a loft apartment. Our mutual friend, Stefan's humble abode. Thank you, Stefan. Where is he? Oh, he's over there. Cool. So it's a pretty cool setting for a podcast here in Brooklyn. We're happy to be in New York, and uh, it's a treat to connect with you and uh and to talk to you man i think uh i remember we were talking just before the podcast started i remember you being on joe rogan's show quite a while back and and it being a rather provocative stimulating conversation so i look forward to getting into it a little bit with you and uh thinking back on on your work um I feel like, and disabuse me of this notion if it's incorrect, but I feel like you were sort of uh, pigeonholed as the guy. Like when 2012 came around, it's like, oh, the, you're the 2012 guy. You're the, the Mayan end of the world guy, you know? And, and people not really understanding what 
your messages or not taking the time to actually read uh, what what your writing uh, was saying or, or what you were speaking to specifically, because I think it really was about a shifting consciousness uh, and and this, for lack of a better phrase, new era that that I feel like we're entering into um, in terms of human awareness, uh, planetary consciousness, what's going on with the environment, a whole number of things that, that we can speak about. Uh, yeah, no, it was a fascinating experience. I mean, I sort of, I guess I opened myself up to it because I wrote a book that I titled, mm-hmm. came out in 2006, called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, <laughs> right. which um, I think is still just as germane and pertinent now as when it came out. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I basically was looking you know, forward to that threshold. I mean, I looked at a lot of different theories and scenarios and there were a lot of people, you know, from Jose Arguelles to Terrence mm-hmm. McKenna to um, just a whole bunch of other characters who, who definitely either insinuated or stated straight out that they thought something traumatic or, uh, you know, some tremendous apotheosis or apocalyptic galactic superwave, right. meteorite, <laughs> uh, DMT mass activation was going to happen. So I couldn't really, I didn't feel like I could rule any of that out because what do I know? But the, 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 the thrust was more along the lines of what you were saying that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're being forced into a kind of, um, you know, kind of consciousness change and that's happening through the evolution of technology, the kind of growing awareness of how all the world's esoteric traditions kind of can be integrated and also, yeah, the kind of rapid, um, acceleration of the ecological crisis mm-hmm. as a kind of threshold event for human consciousness. And, but it was very instructive to see how the media will take something and deform and, and distort it. And, um, yeah, it was interesting to be part of that process. Right. I mean, you, you had to kind of weather that, that, that inquiry, right. If, uh, being on the other side of 2012, people saying, well, you know, what happened? Didn't it happen? You know, but we're in, we're in 2015 right now. And I think if you look back on what's occurred in the last three years, I mean, what, 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 uh, strikes you as being consistent with that narrative? Well, I mean, the, the most unfortunate part of it is the, um, continuing, uh, revelations from, you know, what scientists are learning about what's happening to the biosphere that it actually seems to be, you know, worse and worse, um, and faster and faster than, than anticipated even a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, to the point where, where, you know, we're literally putting, you know, the the future of the human species in, in, in jeopardy, um, even in, you know, a century or two time frame. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we're in the momentum of this whole society that is very hard to interrupt or to stop. Even for those of us who are, you know, part of the, you know, new consciousness movement or whatever, we're still, you know, hopping planes all around the world, you know, buying, you know, beautiful, seductive electronic equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, living well, I mean, eating fruits that come from around the world that travel 5,000, 10,000 miles to get to us. I mean, so, so we're all embedded in, in a system that in itself is 
degrading the life support systems of, of, of the earth as a whole. Right. I think, you know, no matter how lightly you try to tread on the planet, you're still participating in this system. I mean, even if you, if you live in the United States and you're paying taxes, then, you know, you're de facto participating in a system that maybe politically you don't necessarily agree with. And you kind of canvas what's happening, whether it's peak oil or species extinction or rainforest destruction, what have you. There is this uh, almost, you know, impossible to stop gestalt of human progress and growth, you know, does, that, that sort of mashes up against and stands in contrast to this rise, which I, I believe I'm optimistic about this rise in consciousness um, that we're seeing, but how do those two meet? Like, where do you see, how do you see this playing out? That's a, you know, that's the question. That's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, my effort to kind of work through that is is the book that I'm writing now that I've been mm. failing to complete to writing over the last like six or seven years. I mean, I had a contract and forfeited it. I was also trying to kind of, um, you know, kind of actualize the ideas by starting a company and a social movement and stuff like that. And with, with Evolver and yeah, Reality e- Sandwich. Exactly, and, right. Mm-hmm. And the Evolver Network. So, yeah, that was like a, a you know, a learning experiment prototype. And um, now, well, recently I'm, I, I started one version of a think tank called Center for Planetary Culture. And kind of the summation of that was we did a, a wiki around this idea of rege- regenerative society. Like what would what would that look like? What would be the path to um, manifest it? And we sort of condensed a lot of those ideas in, in a paper called Toward Regenerative Society, mm-hmm. which is on my site, danielpinchbeck.net on the blog or on the um, planetaryculture.com site on the blog there. And so, yeah, essentially, um, you know, you could break it up into different areas. Let's say the three main areas would be the technical infrastructure, uh, the political, economic, or social system, and then, you know, consciousness and culture. And then you, we, those are the three areas which mm-hmm. kind of correspond to what, like, Marx, I guess, talked about, is like base structure and superstructure or something like that. So, um, you know, we would need a rapid evolution in all three areas. Um, probably in a sense, in a strange way, the hardest is the, is the, is the consciousness and culture side. The, the fact is that people have been so programmed and indoctrinated into a certain set of beliefs on different levels that it's, it's, it's very hard for uh, people to shift out of them mm-hmm. to recognize that, you know, they could be, they could become active agents of, of this change. But, you know, we know now that, you know, we could feasibly have, um, you know, 100% uh, renewable energy sources within several decades. I mean, this uh, engineer Mark Jacobson did a whole, does a thing called the Solutions Project, where he maps out the whole U.S. and, and how the U.S. could become 100% renewable by um, 2030. Mm. Uh, and there's... Um, is that, is that uh, can you find that online? That yeah, Solutions online? Project. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, and then Jeffrey Sachs, sort of an ambiguous figure, he's an economist from Columbia, um, who Naomi Klein wrote about unflat favorably in the Shock Doctrine, but he's done a larger project, glo- looking globally at how this rapid transition could happen. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book called The Third Industrial Revolution, looking at the Internet of Energy and how that could you know develop rapidly to also allow for a whole transition in, in industrial paradigm. So. Yeah, in terms of the the energy issue and other aspects of the technical infrastructure, it's certainly conceivable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the political economic system, <laughs> it's extremely challenging. Um, you, you would essentially, you know, our our current uh, financial system 
is in itself, uh, you know, promotes competitive, uh, aggressive, unsustainable behavior patterns. Certainly. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's conceptual and practical realities, and then there's implementation of that. And, you know, that, that begs the question of the structure that creates permissibility for that, right? And, and then there's consumer desire and consumer will and consumer choice. So, you know, I think that, that uh, capitalism is woven through it as an impediment and also as an accelerator in certain respects, but it transcends it transcends capitalism, I think, also at the same time. Like, whether it's capitalism or not, uh, there are other aspects of, I think, human behavior and the growth of human populations that also create, you know, barriers that go beyond political systems. Well, I mean, I, th- I think what's become clear at this point is that you don't have a political system and an economic system as two separate things. You have a political economic system, you know, mm-hmm. so... You know, the, the media is, is woven into the military-industrial complex. You know, um, CNN and the New York Times are, to a certain extent, you know, adjuncts of, you know, the Pentagon and the mm-hmm. NSA and so on. And, you know, same with Facebook and so on. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> so you're not going to solve this problem for me today? Um, well, I mean... I mean, I, I, in my own mind, I have an idea of, of you know, how a, how a solution might emerge. Um, you know, and we do see, I think that it's very significant that we've seen, you know, things like the emergence of Facebook and Google mm-hmm. or uh, Zhuzhal, as the comedian Reggie Watts likes to jokingly call it. Um, you know, in a very short period of time, we've meshed, you know, we have platforms that can, that can connect over a billion, you know, soon it'll be two billion people on the planet. So... And, and, you know, that, that shows that we could create some kind of social infrastructure that um, really everybody, you know, could access and it could lead people towards uh, collaborative decision making, mm-hmm. cooperative ownership, sharing of resources, um, you know, very interesting developments in, I mean, Bitcoin itself is very interesting, but then right. the idea that you could take elements of the, the, the underlying architecture of Bitcoin, which is called the blockchain, and build other forms of um, currency or other instruments for exchanging value mm-hmm. that have different principles uh, and kind of ethics uh, built into them. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff emerging on, on the edge um, you know, of the periphery, and uh, it, it could be that it meshes together. But we, we are definitely facing some severe uh, constraints and it, it is even, to be honest, if you really look at the scientific data, possible that it's actually too late uh, to save ourselves from extinction. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing that was coming to my mind is it's really it's really a time thing. Like, are we going to run out of time before we can get our shit together? Right. I mean, you have it is it goes back to that same idea of it being this incredible like uh, you know dichotomy of all this amazing you know these amazing new tools that are arising that allow people to kind of get to the next level in their in their consciousness and collectively organized to improve themselves and improve the world, you know, butting up against uh, a never more powerful system that is trying to kind of, you know, create the opiate of the masses through television and media and, you know, materialism and consumer behavior patterns, et cetera. And they're almost at, 
they're so at odds with each other, like there's this little war going on. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking and we're depleting our, the planet's resources at an unfathomable rate. So what is going to win out in this? How are we going to tip the scales in favor of the positive? Yeah, we may or we may not. We may. I, um, I mean, you know, many thinkers who've been looking at this type of uh, situation that we're in, you know, something like Barbara Marx Hubbard or whatever, talk about um, transition of like the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly and how it's like a total kind of breakdown and reconfiguring. It's not like the caterpillar sprouts wings in, in the cocoon. The caterpillar de- eats its way through the entire cocoon, then it dissolves into a kind of undifferentiated goop. And a few um, what are called imaginal discs or imaginal cells in the caterpillar begin to activate and begin to propagate like a new program mm-hmm. to transform this whole goop. And those 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 discs or cells are then seen as... Uh, you know, viral invaders and the immune system of the dying caterpillar tries to attack them. And as they strengthen themselves, they propagate and they somehow reorganize the whole thing. So, you know, there's the metaphor, I guess, you know, chaos theory, the idea of the strength, you know, like kind of um, phase transitions where you end up with something that's totally on another order of complexity or has, or has, you know, kind of capacities um, that were not even imagined or anticipated from the previous state. Um, and maybe something like that, you know. That's uh, like a quantum shift as opposed to a gradual evolution, you know, progressive evolution. Right. Well, that yeah, big, it sort of sure. sounds like, like something dramatic happening, right? Well, yes, it, it would be dramatic, but I mean, you know, then you get into the whole question of what time is anyway. But I mean, in terms of it, right. it's, it's certainly a telescoped process. I mean, even human history, you know, is is not even like I can't, you know, if... if I can't remember exactly what it's like, but if the whole history of the earth is like an arm, you know, it's not even like the tip of the fingernail or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? So, you know, we're already in some kind of very telescoped process where we're, you know, throwing off our projections in terms of technologies and social systems and cultural constructs and, and religious philosophies and so on. It's definitely, you know, we're, 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 we're in a kind of, kind of quantum phase shift, right. e- even if on the scale of our own little lives, it, it, it feels sometimes uh, dull, mm-hmm. you know, and we're like waiting around for something. So then what is it, what's the thrust of the new book? What is the theme? Uh, it's the pretty thesis. much what we're talking about. I mean, I'm, uh, the thesis would be that um, the ecological crisis is uh, unconsciously something, or you could say it's, it's, it's maybe, you know, like, like, like a birth crisis, like something that somehow is programmed into the evolution of uh, the human species. Um, or like an initiation. Uh, and an initiation is something that I've been very interested in in the other books, like in terms of shamanism and, mm-hmm. and um, kind of how, you know, cultures, ancient traditional cultures all around the world all possessed kind of initiation um, uh, techniques uh, until modern Western culture. And the idea from Joseph Chilton Pierce is that um, initiation uh, is not just kind of like uh, a cultural phenomenon. It may actually have a neurobiological function Mm. in that, um, you know, the neocortex is the most recently emerged, uh, developed part of the brain that separates us from animals, that makes us distinctly human, that gives us the capacity to process symbols and think long term and and so on. Um, But it may be that the um, neocortex needs a second uh, shock of, of cultural development or culturally induced uh, development in early adulthood or late adolescence mm-hmm. so that people um, shift from a kind of limited ego-based uh, uh, kind of sense of identity to a more transpersonal or tribal identity. 
So that may be why these 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 kinds of initiations were prevalent all over the world. Um, I mean, there's, it, we've completely lost touch with that as a culture. I mean, what is the equivalent? Like your bar mitzvah or getting your driver's license or you know being on the high school football team. And we have no connection to that at all. And it plays such a huge part and has throughout human history in so many cultures. And I think that that has really... Um, that's, that's an erosion of, you know, the fabric of what it means to grow up and have a more communal based perspective on, you know, where you live and the people that you're interacting with. Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, in tribal cultures, you need to go through initiation, especially men to become like a fully realized kind of adult, Mm -hmm. mature member of the community. Because once you've activated that neocortex more fully, then you can, um, you know, you, you get out of your personal identity and you, you, you understand that you're connected to the tribe and you have like a larger sense of identity. So it may be that humanity has unconsciously willed this um, extremely dangerous uh, threshold uh, that threatens us with extinction in order to bring about a, a mass initiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at like Rebecca, uh, what's her mm. name? Um, Solnit, Re- Rebecca Solnit book, A Paradise Built in Hell, you know, she looks at, you know, kind of disasters all around the world and how people in disasters actually snap out of their, their ego um, kind of uh, state and become altruistic, become, you know, recognize themselves as part of a community. And actually people will often remember those times of disasters, like the most amazing times in their lives. And she points out that if, if we actually were just, you know, living, I guess, right, authentically, a disaster would just be a disaster, you know, but mm-hmm. it, it actually, um, yeah, so, so that would be part of my, um, my thesis is that we've unconsciously, we're unconsciously willing this threshold of global catastrophe to, uh, to force our own initiation. Now, we don't necessarily have to do that, but we, we lost touch with these, with these other aspects of, of the psyche and other aspects of being. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we put ourselves in this kind of pickle. Right. I mean, it's almost like if you're, you know, orbiting the planet in a satellite and you're looking down, it's, it's, it's become, you know, one giant organism. You know, <laughs> when you look at the way traffic is the way blood cells travel through arteries and veins and it becomes this self-perpetuating machine that's almost, you know, you could characterize as having its own consciousness and its own sort of so, life path. Totally. Well, it's almost like you read my book or mm-hmm. I guess maybe we're all writing the same book. But yeah, yeah. so like this whole idea that um, we're... Um, on the cusp of realizing uh, the human species in symbiotic relationship with the ecology of the earth as a whole system as like a gigantic planetary superorganism. And as an asp- as a kind of a reflection of that realization, we would then reorganize our you know, productive capacities um, and our way of using resources and, and, and um, you know, exchanging value. Because like our bodies, I mean, um, a good book about all this stuff is Spontaneous Evolution, which was by Bruce Lipton, mm-hmm. a cell biologist, and Steve Behrman, who's a political philosopher. And um, they suggest that, yeah, that, that, that this is like, um, you know, if you go back to the history of, of biological evolution, it, shift, it goes from competition, domination, like immature ecosystems are characterized by aggression and domination. When they shift into mature ecosystems, it goes into symbiosis and cooperation. Mm -hmm. And they point out that our bodies are a great example of symbiosis and cooperation. Like you don't have the liver trying to invade the pancreas, you know, or or the, you know, the energy is shared 
uh, efficiently. Right, and, and but you're with respect to the planet. Then you're you're presuming that that the human race is, is is has some kind of symbiotic relationship as opposed to parasitic. Like you know, I don't know that we're we're you know we're not our our existence is not in balance with resources and you know the sort of future what the future holds in terms of how we're living here. No, not not now. But this has also been a very fast um, period and. Um, the game's not over yet, right? I mean, you know, it could even be, I mean, it would be an unpleasant scenario for our children uh, that uh, the human population almost totally collapses. Like, you know, we know that, you know, thousands of years ago, maybe like a few thousand human beings existed in the world Mm -hmm. and they walked out of Africa and started trotting everywhere. Um, But it might be that our population on the earth goes down to a couple hundred thousand, you know, a couple million. Those people living in terrarium-like domed environments like the biosphere, you know, they set up in northern latitudes. And from there, over the course of centuries, they have to figure out how to live symbiotically, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and that type of catastrophe might be the kind of necessary precedent for something that in another 2,000 years would be extraordinarily beautiful, you know, where we'd become, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope, I actually don't think that that has to happen at all, but... um from where we're going now, it's it's one possible outcome, right? Right, but how, what prevents them from not making the same mistakes that has led us to this point? Well, I mean, it it you know, it seems as if post collapse societies often learn something from their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, one one example that some people talk about is even the indigenous Mayan people who, after the empire of, you know, the Maya sort of overgrazed its territory, they went back into a very um, kind of sustainable life pattern. And, you know, indigenous people around the world have uh, overcome, surmounted, and empire survived it and, and, you know, found ways to live, yeah, in in kind of harmony with the environment without taking more than they need. Right. So... That being said, then I see an optimism in you, even if it even if it requires some level of disaster to get there. That that at your core, you're still optimistic about the human race. Yeah, yeah, no, it's. I mean, um, you know, I think that we are only at the beginning of tremendous adventure, um, and you know what I think we see in technology is ultimately something that is, you know, kind of connected to the, the, you know, ancient Neoplatonist or William Blakeian concepts of the liberation of the human imagination. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're seeing the gap closing between a vision and its realization, you know, like uh, even this podcast, like 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, you know, we would have been, you know, typing out letters to each other on an electric typewriter and, you know, whatever. So, you know, we're seeing that, you know, faster and faster people are able to do you know, more and more uh, creative things. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the destiny here. I mean, um, where I remain uncomfortable, and this is something that I'm still, I think about all the time, is the, this whole singularity notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what what is the destiny of, of technology? I mean, you know, the, the Kurzweilian concept is that, you know, we're, we're not even going to need our physical bodies in the right. same way soon. They're gonna, we're going to have Speaking nanobots of, that breathe for us. <laughs> Speaking of optimism, I mean, he's, he's extremely optimistic about that. And then, you, you know, you see Elon Musk tweeting, you know, beware, beware. Uh, you know, how is this all going to play out? Yeah, no, nobody knows. I mean, mm-hmm. and, it, and it may happen in, in, you know, some way we can't even predict, you know. Right. But it's more and more part of the conversation. 
You know, I mean, I think it's undeniable with the acceleration of technological development that we're headed in that direction. You know, and and this is something that, you know, the simple fact that in which direction in the direction towards I don't know if it's the singularity per se in Kurzweil's specific notion of what that is, but some level of artificial intelligence and having to, you know, we're we're seeing self-driving cars and we're seeing business people say saying, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to take a moment. We need to take a beat. We need to consider what we're doing, but our system doesn't really provide for that. You know, so I don't see, I don't see a lot of considered thought. I just see forward momentum. Yeah. That's a big problem. That's probably <laughs> yeah. why it's taken me so many years to try to come up with a friggin' book. I mean, it's even hard to think about this stuff, you know, cause it opens into so many really bizarre areas. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, then you go into all this like occult philosophy, like Rudolf Steiner, who, mm-hmm. you know, a number of a number of visionary philosophers have proposed that you know our, our current state is kind of an intermediary or transitional state to another level of of consciousness and being, uh, which Aurobindo talked about as like the the super mental condition uh, beyond where we're stuck in now, kind of like the mental structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steiner talked about it as the, you know, developing what he called the spirit self. Um, he looked at these different occult, you know, different bodies. He, he felt that we currently possess four bodies. Uh, he, anyway, it's a whole long, you want to hear a little digression? A little about bit, Steiner? yeah, right, yeah, cool. yeah. Well, all right, so Steiner is one of my favorite thinkers, and he was a visionary who was able to, like, read the Akashic records, according to his own accounts, and see in all these realms, kind of like he was constantly tripping on ayahuasca without mm-hmm. need for any substances. And founder and, of the Waldorf School. Anthroposophy, system. Waldorf Schools, mm-hmm. Biodynamic Agriculture. So that was also very interesting, in that he was able to take his very far-out ideas and, and, and sort of create practical applications mm-hmm. that like the Waldorf schools are the most uh, largest independent education movement in the West and biodynamic agriculture is a big deal and still a forerunner for organic agriculture. So anyway, he said the mission of his life on earth was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West that um, not only did people reincarnate again and again in much the way Tibetan Buddhism talks about. And in fact, he wrote a whole series of books called karmic relationships where he traced different individualities in the West back to previous incarnations. But the Earth itself reincarnates. This is currently the fourth incarnation of the Earth, mm-hmm. on the, mm. moving towards the fifth incarnation, which I found very interesting because it correlates kind of uh, exquisitely with you know, Mesoamerican and Native American beliefs, like the Hopi talk about this being the fourth world in a transition to the fifth world. So reincarnation of the the actual like physical aspects of the planet itself or humankind on the planet? Well, for Steiner, as best as I can understand it, these incarnations of the earth are in a way like states or levels of consciousness or structures of consciousness or, or, or ways of uh, re- realizing uh, being in uh, time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, each for him, each of these, and once again, it's kind of like when you look at all these different occult philosophies, you know, they're like almost like different types of music. And we get, we tend, our problem as humans is we get, we get caught in the strain and we get caught in beliefs and ideologies and we become kind of overwhelmingly certain about one thing. Whereas I think we need to be able to sort of step back and almost play with these different ideas, like, like they're types of uh, music or something like mm-hmm. that. But anyway, so his idea is that um, in each incarnation of the earth, we've gained a different body. So we have four bodies now, which is the astral body, the physical body, the etheric body, and the eye. 
and we're on the verge of uh, acquiring another body, which he talks about as the spirit self. Mm -hmm. And that body is, when we go to sleep at night, the astral body and the eye detach from the physical body and the etheric body, and they go visit these other astral (laughs) worlds together. Um, What's happening is the astral body is where all of our cravings and desires and impulses come through that we're not able to totally control yet. So as the eye, the ego strengthens and it's able to hold or control those impulses and, and drives, that creates a new body called the spirit self. So the next incarnation of the earth for him is our individuality becoming strong enough so that we can master these cravings and, and, you know, yeah. So, I mean, it to me correlates with Jung's, Jung's ideas or Barbara Marks Hubbard talking about conscious evolution or something. I mean, at the mm-hmm. moment, you know, we're, we're in the inertia of um, kind of the evolution of our social and industrial systems and we don't quite know how to pull out of the the the, the uh, momentum of it. Right. Um, if we get a hold of ourselves individually, then maybe we can figure out how to do it socially and collectively. Right. It, it starts with individual responsibility. It has to. That's the only. That's the only way through this. But there's so much momentum. The idea of halting the momentum that is that is perpetuating these, you well, know. Well, you know, there probably seemed like a lot of momentum for the British Empire in India before Gandhi turned up and somehow got everybody to stop the momentum, uh-huh. you know. I mean, um, and then, I mean, you know, if we think about it in those terms, then, you know, if you go to every yoga studio, they have little altars where they tack up, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King next to these Indian gurus and so on. And in a way, by canonizing these types of uh, figures who were flawed humans but somehow gave it, you know, 100%, you know, uh, you, you, by canonizing them and making them into these kind of saints, we kind of remove them from our sense of possibility, you know? So, I mean... Wait, it, it, well, hold on, let's camp out there. Like, what do you mean exactly by that? I mean, because like... Because um, they become inaccessible? They become inaccessible. Right. So we don't think that, you know, you or I could do what Gandhi did right, and, like, right, build right. a movement and actually just do whatever it took to stop... Yeah, they're like stop. the Beatles or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they become exactly. an idea. Yeah, but we probably would need, if we're really going to stop the momentum of the suicide system, you know, several million Gandhis to just stop whatever else they think they're doing. And, you know, I mean, like, for instance, they had the climate march in New York a few months ago. Um, Turned out I had a broken foot. I was in agony the whole time, but Mm -hmm. I did march for a long time. Uh, And, you know, it was great. All these people turned out, rah, 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 you know, it felt really good. And then, you know, the march ended and everybody went back to their schools, their their homes. You know, what (laughs) what if instead of going, and how many people were there at that march? Like 300,000? It was huge. It was huge, right. Instead of leaving and going back home, what if they'd actually just stayed? You know, and said, we're not leaving, we're not going anywhere, you know, until, you know, this system changes and and we get, you know, a movement towards 100% renewables. Well, Occupy Wall Street was was sort of a stab in that direction. It was totally a stab in that direction. And, you know, I don't, you know, there's differing opinions on the results of that. But, you know, I, I have to imagine that looking at current structures and systems that it's not going to be a situation of, oh, we're going to slowly wean ourselves off of foreign oil and we're going to, you know, make this gradual shift to, you know, self-sustainable systems and we're going to move towards, uh, you know, biodynamic farming and growing our own food and away from the industrial food comp. Like, I just think it's going to have to be something more dramatic that's going, something, if it's going to, if it's going to tip the scales either positive or negative, I think something huge has to happen. An intervening event of some kind that, you know, we can't foresee or predict. Um, And I guess Gandhi is an example of that. You know, something has to come along, whether you know, uh, individual personality based or 
you know, event-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, um, events also don't have any um, meaning in and of themselves. I mean, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall was in a tremendous, um, you know, historical opportunity. Um, and, but the problem was that there wasn't really an alternative model for what those societies could become. So they got kind of uh, subsumed into like neoliberal economics and, and privatization and so mm-hmm. on. So, I mean, I think that we could predict that there's going to be another moment probably another collapse of the financial system, um, you know, when we look at um, the whole thing as kind of smoke and mirrors and, and, and you know, it's like a big card trick at this point. So the question is, you know, could we have something in place, you know, for that moment where mm-hmm. enough people go, oh, you know, actually we could actually just move in that direction. Well, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a good example of that, I think. Do you think? Or, I mean, it's unless it becomes sort of co-opted by Wall Street and... and yeah, I think, well, I mean, you know, Bitcoin has already been kind of carved. I mean, you know, a lot of people own Bitcoin, and uh, I think I think Bitcoin is just a model for <coughs> a future currency that would be based maybe on renewable energy credits mm-hmm. or permaculture credits or you know sharing economy or something. But I mean, I don't think Bitcoin in itself has any any different um, behavior patterns or, or ethics or values kind of inscribed in, in its function. But it, but it does provide the consumer the ability to sidestep the banking complex and, and create transactions independent of that. Yeah, no, I mean... So it's, that's huge in and of itself, is it not? I mean... It, it's, well, it's huge. I think, you know, one of the biggest aspects of it is just conceptually for enough people to begin to say, okay, well, actually, you know, um, you know money is kind of a social network. I mean, ultimately, money is... Um, I mean, I like Antonio Negri... Uh, as a political philosopher from Italy, what does he talk about? He talks about how what is capital ultimately? Capital is a social relation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, if you meet a billionaire, um, everybody a billionaire walks into a room and everybody's like, ah, oh, a billionaire is here. You know, um, here's like Sean Parker or Donald Trump or something. Everybody like it's like a physical force has entered the room. But actually, you know, where is that? Where is that billion or whatever it is? It's just in everybody's minds, right? It's, it's an just, idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's represented by pieces of paper that not even, are not even yeah. don't even exist or are not in the possession of that person anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, so. it's, it's chains of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So, if you had to, let's say, we're in some sort of post-apocalyptic state, and you've been appointed to sort of reconstruct, uh, you know, some level, some form of social governance. Like, how do you how do you create a functional society that for the future that can grow, expand, is scalable, that would work with understanding, you know, the psychology of human beings. Uh, great question, good one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like we're seeing uh, more and more developments in that area, and um, I think it would be, you know, looking at like um, Thomas Jefferson's idea of elementary republics. Um, you'd have to create a, like a participatory structure that that goes from the local to the planetary scale. <coughs> and I think that um, our social networking technology is, you know, abundantly capable of providing um, ways that everybody could be uh, brought into a, a direct democratic process. Mm-hmm. I really like these two tools. There's one uh, started by a group called New Ze- from New Zealand that's called Lumio, lumio.org. Essentially, you can create a group of up to like 500 or more people uh, and uh, start making decisions, you know, like um, put up a, you know, like do the, we're, we're 10 people in this room or whatever, you know, do we want to start a media cooperative? Okay, yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Do we want, you know, to 
everyone puts in a thousand dollars to get it going. Sure, you know, do, do, how do we want to assign that money? You know, so Lumio is a very simple tool for a small group. Uh, community decision making. It's actually being used right now by a movement in, in uh, that's developing a very interesting movement in Spain called Podemos, mm. uh, which means we can. So Spain is a country that's pretty much wrecked right now. They have like over 50% uh, youth unemployment, um, totally demoralized economically, kaput. Uh, Podemos um, uses a grassroots organizing model. Um, it's seeing revolution or social change as process rather than ideology. So it's beginning at a local level. It's uh, creating these small groups. They won, I think, 1.2 million votes after just being around for like a few months. And now they're polling first in a number of uh, polls in, in Spain. So they're actual political party. Yeah, they're, they're a political party. Anybody who wins, they won like five uh, seats in the European Parliament. Mm. Anybody who wins from Podemos uh, makes certain agreements, like agrees to only make six times minimum wage. Uh, which I think they got from Plato, because he talked about in the ideal republic, nobody would make six times, more than six times more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't fly business class, and they can't meet with lobbyists. You know, so, so, mm-hmm. so, and they have to report directly to their little uh, constituencies. And so the, member, the members of this organization all mutually agree on this. Yeah, they, exactly. they come up with the parameters exactly. upon which exactly. I understand. And there's a, so Lumio.org, it's one really interesting tool that anybody can use right away. Uh, Democracy OS is being started uh, from Argentina, uh, and that's for larger, for municipal or federal levels. And uh, once again, it's a tool for direct democracy, but it has the capacity to uh, create proxy votes. So for instance, you know, you may know that you're not great on you know the water issues, but you know somebody that you pretty much trust who would be good, and that you could assign your vote to that person. Mm-hmm. And they're also running candidates in Argentina, and anybody who wins has to basically they're just a proxy for Democracy OS. Like they agree to f- to vote in whatever way the community tells them to. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You know, when you look at our current, you know, political system, uh, do you, are you of the, do you share a mindset with someone like Russell Brand who says, you know, look, the only way to deal with this is to not participate in it. We have to start completely over. We need a new way. Or can you see a way to, to, you know, evoke reform within the system piece by piece? I mean, how do you kind of approach that? Um, yeah, I mean, by the way, I'd, I'd like a, some influence on Russell's ideas in a lot of areas. He wrote mm-hmm. a few chapters about me in his book mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so I think um, it doesn't really need to be an either or. <clears throat> There's nothing, you know, it's, I mean, I'm not a voter. I, I can't, I haven't been voting for a long time. So mm-hmm. I un- totally understand where Russell is coming from. If there was something like Democracy OS or Lumio, I mean, if there was Podemos in the U.S., I would vote for them. However, I think that the um, current political system is very problematic in that it's kind of um, 18th century social technology. You know, the governments that we have now were essentially constructed at a time when horse and buggies and schooner ships were the, were the fastest mm-hmm. mode of communication. And there wasn't, you know, super powerful hyper technologies. So they're, they're totally um, outmoded by what we've actually got going on. So, I mean... You know, I think they could be superseded more or less um, through social movements that use, you know, digital technologies to make collective decisions. Well, with with transportation the way that it is. Which doesn't mean they have to be, you know, doesn't mean they have to, we don't need like a violent revolution. You can think about, you know, the aristocracies in Europe still existed after the 18th century revolutions. It's just, um, they became a little more vestigial. Right, right, right. I mean, I think that that (coughs) with digital communication and transportation as it is, the argument in favor of states' rights becomes denigrated. Like, it's less important, like, these boundaries between states, whereas, the, you know, the sort of supremacy of the whole or the, the, the best interest, the communal best interest of the nation or the globe of, uh, as a whole gets under-addressed as a result of, you know, some representative who's, you know, they grow corn where he lives, and he needs to make sure that whatever law passes favors that, that is... Uh, you know, not in the interest of the greater whole. Yeah, I mean, the, so, the system now is just, um, unfortunately, you know, lo- lobbyists can corrupt it. <coughs> Excuse me, corporations yeah. can corrupt it. I mean, taking that idea that we discussed earlier, that humanity might be on the cusp of itself, realizing itself to be something like a superorganism, I think corporations then become really interesting because we could look at them almost as... Um, nascent organs in that collective body. Um, so, for instance, like in energy companies like the blood in the body or media companies like the perceptual mm-hmm. mechanisms. <coughs> Excuse me. But at the moment, we've created corporations kind of like artificial life forms. Yeah, I mean, it's the first example of true artificial intelligence, is it not? Living, breathing, conscious on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know about artificial intelligence, but they definitely have a will of their own because we've created a game called the stock market and we've told them, we've programmed them, <coughs> excuse me, to maximize, you know, shareholder value is their one kind of um, way of winning the game, mm-hmm. you know. 
So they, they ha- you know, they're kind of the way we've created them means that they have to ignore environmental restrictions and social benefits and so on. If we could redesign the logic of the game, then corporations might become team players. They might become cooperative. They might they might actually like um, become extremely powerful agents of social good. But short of well, let's presume let's presume we can remove. Uh, we can remove uh, money from government to the extent that gives these corporations so much power, right? That we can, we can sort of decimate K Street and remove the lobbying impact uh, on Washington. <clears throat> Where do we, you know, how do we uh, stimulate uh, conscious capitalism? Because we are seeing, you know, more conscious capitalism at the same time that we're seeing, you know, the nefarious aspects of, of what this system brings upon us. Give me some examples of what you mean. Um, well, I mean, if you see, <coughs> you see you see companies that are a little bit more, at least maybe it's just marketing, but, yeah. you know, more benevolent, I suppose. Like you see the Tom Shoes or the companies that are sort of giving back as they're, as they're growing. And that's a new phenomenon, right? So does that, does that provide optimism for you, you know? Or do you think that we just, we have to just start over? I don't know. I mean, um... Did you read Naomi Klein's new book? No, I didn't. It's definitely worth reading. But she basically demolishes conscious capitalism, and um, as as a as marketing hype, or, yeah, uh-huh. pretty much, um, as well as a lot of the nonprofit industry, and as well as the you know the hope that some billionaire messiah like Richard Branson or Elon Musk is going to do the job. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that yeah, the problem is that. Um, you know, it's it's, um, it's going to take more than, than that. I mean, yeah, of course it's better than nothing, but um, um, you know, I mean, I heard the guy from Patagonia, one of the presidents of Patagonia speak, and that's like one of the companies that's trying to do things the best way. Right. And he's like, look, even with everything that we're doing, the ecological footprint is still terrible. Mm-hmm. You know? Um yeah, trying to be as sustainable as possible. You know, because when in, he still you, has to move his product around on trucks, and you know, like there's no way around it. I mean, we might, we may really need, you know, I mean, I guess these things are just terms in a way, but some kind of a narco socialism. I mean, we know, for instance, that you know, eighty percent of the food that New York needs could be grown on the rooftops with mm-hmm. aquaponics and so on. But who's going to institute a program like mm-hmm. that? Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen spontaneously. It will happen. It will happen when we run out of food, or the system breaks down enough, or we can't transport the the food. Right. So it will, you know, pain will motivate that. But until then, it's not going to happen. You know, voluntarily. Yeah. But the problem is that the problem with waiting is, um, <clears throat> you know, for instance, the problem of the the methane under the Arctic. Right. You know about that. Mm-hmm. Yes. 1,400 gigatons of methane. It's like a huge ticking time bomb. The Arctic, the Arctic is melting three times faster than the rest of the planet. And that's how the Permian mass extinction happened 250 million years ago. It's like once the temperature goes a few degrees above normal, then all these feedback loops kick in. And we're already seeing that with these mega droughts and drying out to the rainforest. And, you know, um, if the methane starts to erupt in large quantities, there's <clears throat> some you know, evidence that's already starting to do that. Mm-hmm. We might have a 5 to 10 degree Celsius temperature rise in a matter of de- decades, which would make... Well, that it, just puts it over the top. Then it's game over. Well, yeah, it's definitely going to be... 
tough one. Isn't isn't two percent the threshold? Two degrees Celsius. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So scientists right. determine that, and and that's been what's put out. And to make that seems almost impossible at this point. It would require the industrial nations reducing <coughs> CO two emissions by ten percent a year, in order to prevent the two the yeah, two degrees. But right. but now they're also saying that they may have been wrong about two degrees, and it may actually be less than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, so do you think we're past the point of no return environmentally? Well, I mean. So, I mean, I think that it's an evolutionary process like the caterpillar to butterfly transition. And we also have, you know, uncounted for factors, like, for instance, our psychic abilities that, um, uh, you know, mainstream culture hasn't even contemplated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm my own work with shamanism, you know, that I wrote about in Breaking Open the Head right. in 2012, 100% convinces me that we have profound psychic capacities. And so, once again, if we look at this as an unconscious uh, self-willing of an initiatory crisis, maybe we're pushing ourselves to a threshold where we have to access these latent capacities that we're not going to access as long as we can go to Starbucks and, and get a double frappuccino right. mocha. Right, until, until we're compelled to have to reckon with them. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, so in a way, like, um, um, you know, we have we have the time now to... Prep, I guess, as much as we can, mm-hmm. <coughs> even just mentally. With all the uh, the cultures that you've kind of immersed yourself in and experienced as a result of your you know travels, etc. I mean, what are the commonalities or the themes that you see? You know, we talked a little bit about the rites of passage, but you know, what are the other kind of aspects of that way of life that we've lost touch with that we could benefit from? You know, taking a look at. Um. Well, I mean, technically, a lot of these cultures <clears throat> had had ways of, you know, being in harmonic balance with the planetary environment, and some of them are now being developed as technologies, like biochar, for instance. You know, biochar. Um, it's um, you, you know, you you slow burn biomass to create energy, and you end up with a. Um, carbon-rich tilth that can be used to restore mm. soil. And it turns out that this is what Indians were doing throughout the whole Amazon. They were actually tending to the soil and restoring the soil by doing this slow-burning process. Wow. Um, similarly, this guy, Alan Savory, run, 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 won the Buckminster Fuller Prize. Right, he yeah, dis- heard of that He guy, discovered yeah. that um, herding um, cattle uh, is actually a way to uh, regenerate um, uh, kind of desertification to, to interrupt desertification and regenerate grasslands, uh, and that actually the, the nomadic herders were keeping their environment in, in, in healthy and in balance through the way they were rotating their cattle and so on. Mm-hmm. So then he's developed systems where you almost take like a military, precise approach to this cattle rotation to regenerate um, desert desert areas. Yeah, I mean, there's been some aspects of that going on now where ranchers can sort of lease land, you know, lease grasslands from the government, and but it's it's not really doesn't seem to be working out so well. Like I, I'm, just giving, really, you, I'm yeah, just giving you a yeah, few, those are good few ideas, minor yeah, examples. Yeah. I mean, there's probably, oh. there's probably tons more, um, but then the, you know the other thing that I think um, these cultures understood was that. Um, like I visited the Kogi and the Arawak in Colombia a few times, and we did kind of work with them, and their elders basically wanted to convey to us that our level of spirituality and consciousness individually is reflected back at us by the natural and the physical world. So there's a deep reciprocity between 
our level of inner development and um, what manifests Wait, as, as the shared reality. Of course. of course, yeah, but it's still hard to get. I mean, hard to, hard to really anchor that. Right, I mean, I but I mean, life, sort of on a rudimentary level, if you say, all right, well, you know, sort of a more, you know, regardless of your spiritual proclivities, however that may, you know, work for you. I mean, there are certain commonalities. Like if you're living a more spiritual life, you're less materialistic, you're less consumer, you're more community-based, you're more of service to your fellow man, all these sorts of things that are not really part of the uh, kind of, you know, cultural mandate. We give lip service to it, but look around at the world. Is that how we're really functioning? Yeah, but I think that (coughs) the point they're making even goes much deeper than that. It's more like... um like, um, you know, if, if we were to have reached a certain level of, of mastery, like of our level of being, and, and, you know, if enough of us were to have, you know, that would actually change how phys- the physical world reflects itself back at us somehow, you know. So on a, you're talking on a more, almost like a, on a multi-dimensional level. Yeah, Like exactly. if everybody sort of was fully tapped in. Or and, anybody, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's that's a that that starts to get into super mind bending. Yeah, ideas. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, your own. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry, I'll be personal. Able to cough my cough. No, it's all right. I'm getting over it myself. <laughs> um, your own personal kind of trajectory and 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 journey through all this is so interesting. I mean, you were a guy who was living in New York, kind of part of the you know literary elite, and you had this sort of moment of. Un- believing like maybe there's something more or a sense of emptiness or a sense of, you know, maybe greater possibility out there. I mean, walk me through a little bit about how you got to this place where you're at. Um, I mean, is that a fair, I don't mean to mischaracterize your journey. That's not accurate. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I suppose it's of some interest. I don't know. I mean, um, I was a journalist and I got into an existential funk and I remembered psychedelics from college and mm-hmm. was able to get some assignments. I got an assignment to go to Africa and do the aboga. But I feel that, like, you know, it was, it was you know, an exciting story 10 years ago, maybe. But now so many pe- other people have really had similar experiences. Maybe I was just, like, a trailblazer, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, um, you know, f- for me, like, in a way, yeah, I mean, um, I'm sort of questioning now kind of... Um, the psychedelic movement in certain respects. I mean, we're seeing tremendous uh, developments in the study of these compounds for, for, you know, medical and therapeutic purposes. Um, and, but however, I, I also think at the same time, it's trickier than, than anticipated. And I, I, I've been working, looking at my own past and was, I write this new book and I think in some ways, like for instance, Taking certain compounds over time had a negative impact on my psycho- psychology. Interesting. Um, and yeah, I think it's. Um, and then I see also like enclaves of very wealthy people in elite places like Ibiza, <coughs> where they've kind of gotten into the ayahuasca, but doesn't really seem to be turning them into Gandhis or Martin Luther Kings. It's more like become another form of like spiritual materialism, or it's like an exciting new thing and. You know, they, it's too boring to go to the same old parties anyway, so now they get together and do that. But I, I don't know if it's really having the type of um, 
you know, I was sort of, sort of hoping that ayahuasca would finish the job that, that LSD didn't complete in the 60s, like really create some kind of awakening, you know, in, in kind of the first world elite uh, that would allow us to overcome our hyper-individual egotism um, and, you know, kind of be of service to this larger process. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure it's happening as of yet. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh that's very interesting to hear you say that because in so many ways, you know, for, you know, I mean, you were kind of the torchbearer for this, you know, sort of coming out and writing, writing about it to the extent that you have. And, and it really is a movement that's grown, you know, considerably in, la- in the last several years. And um, I can't speak to it because I've never had the experience myself. I've had plenty of friends that have. And um so I can't, you know, it's like it's difficult for me to have any kind of opinion on it because I, I haven't done it. Um, but I would imagine that it's something, it's so, it, it's, it's such a powerful thing. Obviously, it redirected the trajectory of your life and, and, and for a lot of other people. But I think that it carries with it a certain responsibility. Like I, what I'm hearing is a lament of, of a lack of kind of appreciation for that aspect of it. Yeah, well, maybe I'm trying to figure out um, if I, you know, do have some role as, I can't remember what you said, um, <laughs> Grand Poobah or something, I don't know. Well, yeah, um, yeah, Torchbearer. <laughs> torchbearer. Yes. Um, yeah, maybe maybe there's a way to, like, you know, it's time to, like, change, you know, reconsider the direction and, and you know, navigate another direction. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like it's not that anybody's going to really listen to me. And I see the same thing with the Burning Man Festival, you know, which, which I was, you know, very inspired by. Actually, even in 2012, I began to criticize it and um in a way like i feel that it's been you know kind of co-opted by kind of uh wealthy elites uh libertarians you know it's 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 more kind of um um the, the 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 deeper aspects of it that that you know really excited me were more that you could see that how, how in a way, uh, how easy it could be to change um, our social system because uh, people will kind of um, move in a different direction if there's a set of principles that they have to follow and those principles make their lives better. So like, you know, somebody who might litter and throw their cigarette butts on the ground in New York is going to go to Burning Man and it's like, leave no trace and suddenly they'll be the most ecologically conscious person because that'll get them laid or make them look good with their friends or whatever. <laughs> but that's all good. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, change, you change the reward structure and people adapt uh, immediately. So if the reward structure is leave no trace, um, you know, uh, give gifts, you know, love each other, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, people will, will you know, um, radical inclusion and so on. People will adapt to that new thing because it makes their lives better. Right. So that, to me, was really, really something that was super amazing. What I've sort of seen is that Burning Man has created this kind of, um, kind of hedonistic desert oasis where um, people, you know, are kind of just going and having, you know, kind of, you know, I guess it's become a culture, and that's part of the problem. That culture is always part of the problem because culture is like people that identify with a culture, and that becomes like a stop, you know. Mm-hmm. Rather than you know recognizing that you know a- a- any culture is just a way of of thinking or constructing. You know, so I, I mean, ideally, to you, Burning Man, how would that have developed in a better in a better way to avoid these? I mean, sort of, isn't it just innate in the way humans kind of function that this is how things go? 
Um, am I just like, you know, nihilistic? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, well, I mean, we saw, you know, there were some things like there was the um, one aspect of Burning Man, which was, you know, creating, what was it called? Where they would go to disaster areas, you know, and, and try to bring the skills they developed mm-hmm. in like building domes and, and, you know, create like emergency shelters and all that stuff. So, that, I mean, I guess more, more in, in those areas and, and more of a sense of like how, and it still may happen. I mean, it's not over yet, you know. Right, more, but pra- more, practical, more of a socially transformative project, and, and practical applications, you know, beyond that window of time. I mean, place. it was interesting. I felt that Burning Man had a resonance or an influence on the whole Occupy movement. <clears throat> that if you went to the Occupy like center on uh, Wall Street, um, it was kind of like a micro Burning Man. There were like camps with tents. Uh, there was like a drum circle area. There was like a gathering area. There was a media area. You know, I feel like. Um, uh, in that way, I think Occupy Wall Street was actually fascinating. Oh, good. I, j- I just remembered something that I, I need to write about in my book, so that makes me happy. <laughs> but in a way, you could look at Occupy Wall Street itself as like um, like a, a cell in a new social organism that was that was that was seeking to form in kind of like hostile ter- terrain. You know, that had all of the living systems of a cell that it had like recycling mm. and sustainability and, mm-hmm. and, and food and, and, and so on. But kind of the, the mitochondria of, you know, what was born out of something like Burning Man. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah, because yeah, Burning Man has that same kind of, kind of feeling of, of this, this um, you know, uh, social organization, you know, on, on another mm-hmm. level. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So right now, where is your interest fall? Like what, what's exciting you? We talked a little bit about some of those technology platforms, but you know, where do you find your eye kind of naturally gravitating towards where you're thinking that's really interesting. I, I need to watch that or what these people are doing is, you know, the future. That's a good question. Um, well, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to take another stab at what I tried with Evolver and, and sort of try to build like a um, media networking platform that linked um, kind of media 
to things like Lumio, like tools so that people could go from getting excited about something to directly creating community around it or, mm-hmm. or activating on it. Um, and then I think Russell Brand, although I'm a little annoyed at him for different reasons at this point, you know, um, why is that? We can talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, um, it's just, you know, I, I feel that, uh, he, he made liberal, um, use of a lot of my ideas, um, and, you know, sort of recipro- reciprocated a little bit, but maybe a little more recipro- reciprocity would have been more truly you know, radical. Um, but anyway, um, you know, but what he's been doing with the Trues, which is his YouTube channel, right. is really changing people's minds um, in England particularly. And I met a lot of people there who, you know, just hadn't really thought about the stuff that he's presenting. Right. And um, I think public artists could have a tremendous role to play. We, if we had about 20 or 30 Russell Brands right now... Um, you know, people. A lot of people would be changing their way of thinking really quickly. Um, I mean, I know a lot of. I'm friends with all these kind of uh, celebutants or whatever who have you know millions of Twitter followers, but they're still you know making it in like the corporate mainstream. Mm-hmm. But they're depressed. They don't like what they're doing. You know, like if um, if they were coming on every day and doing what he's doing and, and shining light. I mean, like you know, he recently um, interviewed. You know, this Pakistani guy who'd spent a year being tortured in Guantanamo Bay, who ran a mm-hmm. girls' school in Pakistan. Guy was so nice, you know, and, and, you know, where in the media you see somebody like that, you know, like, you know, you're not going to see that on CNN, right. you know, just, just humanizing, you know, the, the people who've been, you know, turned into demonized, othered, or degraded, you know. So, yeah, I think we, we, we could use, like, you know, a, a sort of movement of, um, people who already have followings or can develop followings who are, you know, sort of relentlessly shining light into all these different dark corners, um, you know, we're using their charisma uh, for that. I think that that would have a rapid fire effect, particularly if those, um, you know, media um, um, impacts were combined with um, tools that people could get quickly and directly uh, involved in, in, you know, the, the alternative movements. Right. I think I think that is really exciting, and I think that the democratization of the distribution channels of media, just by the simple fact that you're sitting here and we're having this conversation, like you said earlier, would not have been possible earlier, or nobody would have tuned in, and now. We're seeing not only the ability to do this kind of thing, but the interest level that somebody will actually tune in and, and, and listen to a long conversation in the world of the soundbite or will tune in, you know, daily to watch Russell Brand do the trues. Uh, these are not to be underestimated, I think, in terms of shifting consciousness. And I think you're right. I think, you know, the modern day Gandhi is clothed like a Russell Brand. And if we had more people like that or we have very dynamic, well-informed, interesting, provocative personalities that can capture the imagination of the easily distracted youth, that is the key to a better future. Yay. You think? <laughs> I don't know. Could be, I'm yeah, trying yeah. to be optimistic. Yeah, I am yeah, optimistic, sure. but it's, it's difficult, especially in the environmental context. You know, that's, that's what has me so alarmed and will tip my scale towards a more pessimistic no, no, no. I mean, um, no, I mean, I, I was, I was just being momentarily facetious, yeah. but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, you know, I mean, as Bill McKibben writes about in earth, we're not going to get back the earth that we had, but, um, you know, it, we, we could, you know, really, um, refocus, um, our social paradigm away from, you know, um, material, uh, 
you know, individual goals to more of a kind of uh, restoration, replenishment, regeneration. And um, yeah, it could be that, 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 you know, we could, you know, move in a totally different direction. It's just, it's just a question of, of changing the culture. Yeah, we have to shift the reward system, like you said, because humans, you know, we're wired to act in our own self-interest, like it or not. And so we have to be incentivized to do the right thing as opposed to the harmful thing. Yeah, I mean, um, right, which is interesting. I mean, one area that has been sort of maybe one of the more controversial areas that I've touched on is what that could mean in terms of uh, love and sexuality. Uh, I've been particularly interested in a community in Portugal that I visited a few times called Tamara, um, which uh, was started by German radical thinkers who were part of the movements, and the radical movements in the Germany in the 60s and early 70s, and tried to figure out why the alternative didn't actually come to fruition and um, began to realize that it was core issues around uh, love and sexuality that were actually the deepest political issues that society wasn't able to address. So they kind of went into an incubation, they separated from mainstream society and started creating these communities as like laboratories to come up with a different model for a non-possessive trust uh, and transparent-based relating. Mm. Uh, So Tamara is like 120 people and uh, they developed a bunch of social tools. Uh, they, They kind of, in a sense, treat kind of some basic level of, of, of sexual community or sexual satisfaction as kind of like a, a social, shared social responsibility. Uh, and they've tried a lot of very radical hmm. um, ways of, uh, and it's very interesting. How many, so how does that work? I mean, how many people are doing, like how do they just, so there's a, is it like how, on a very nuts and bolts basis, how does that look? Well, I mean, um, you know, I think one of the most important things that they've established, which is obvious and you find in, you know, indigenous cultures all around the world is cooperative childcare. Uh, I think one of the main reasons for, you know, possessiveness, uh, jealousy, it has to do with, in our culture with, um, all the issues, particularly that a woman has to think about and deal with when it comes to the concept of having kids and, Mm -hmm. you know, needing a support system, you know, for 15, 18 years, you know. So in Tamara, like uh, any child who has a child, uh, any any woman who decides to have a child for any reason knows that that child will be taken care of by the whole community. And past Mm -hmm. the age of two, a lot of the kids actually use, uh, live in a a children's compound. So that takes a huge amount of pressure and anxiety off. And um, yeah, I I think the nuclear family is is a catastrophic uh, uh, problem, to be honest, uh, for the most part. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've, uh, just on a personal level, you know, we've been homeschooling our kids and, and trying to create community around that and to be able to have the support of like-minded mind- families who are collectively getting together with this shared goal of educating our children uh, you know, outside of the system in our own way has created a support network that far exceeds anything that we've experienced before. And it's been amazing. And it makes you realize like, this is the way we're supposed to, you know, if you go to the blue zones, this is how they raise their children there. You know, it's very village community based and, and, uh, what are blue zones? Oh, the blue, where they, where people live the longest, right. These sort of very healthy, uh, communities where they experience tremendous longevity due to lifestyle, diet, culture. But most of these places are, you know, basically living life the way that they've been living it for millennia. Yeah. I mean, so, um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, practices around cooperative childcare, cooperative education. That's I think crucial. 
But then also, I mean, you know, if we're to be like, you know, there's a huge amount of sex trafficking around the world. I mean, one of the main reasons that men seek to amass power and wealth is to, you know, increase sexual opportunity. You know, almost all the men that I know who are in long-term monogamous relationships, you know, express um, either the, the wistful desire to have other sexual contacts or they, they do it in a, you know, extraneous, secretive way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I think on, the, on a deeper level, and I think women also have these desires. It's just, it's just they're, they're, they're constituted in a, in a way where they don't necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily having to express them in, in the same way as men. But, it, you know, if you really get, get deeper than that, it's like, you know, if, well, there's a book called Sex at Dawn, which basically argues that we were never a monogamous right, right, species right. Until, until very recently. So like Christopher, what's that? Ryan. Yeah. And somebody jelling. So, for instance, um, if we're not monogamous by nature and we're forced into a social construct of monogamy uh, where we're only supposed to love one person, have desire for one person, so, you know, but we don't actually feel that, then we find that in our most intimate relationship with another human being, we're in, in, a, in a relationship of hypocrisy or, or dishonesty, you know, often. And it's not true for everybody. Some people are totally, truly monogamous, you know, bless them. Um, so, so the problem, though, is that for a lot of people aren't. And so if you're in, if your basic, you know, most intimate human relationship, your most deepest connection with another person is founded on the level of hypocrisy, I think the problem is that that makes you then kind of expect and accept hypocrisy on larger levels, whether mm. it's in corporations or political leaders and so on. So, um, so that, that's part of the problem. So, you know, how, how would we get to a more authentic place? And, and what does that look like? I mean, I think it looks different for every individual, but we would need a, a, a broader range of choices. Right. So, you know, at, at Tamara, they have many people have multi-partner relationships. Most, most people seem to have primary partnerships, but they also have other lovers. I mean, there's a strange kind of tone there. It's very unusual. Like, um, like the men are extremely soft-spoken. Uh, I think in a way it's a society that, that is, is, you know, more governed by, by, by the feminine in a way. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like the form of male display that's like super common in our culture is like frowned on there. Um, anyway, so well, you've removed that 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 mandate for the male to be domineering or alpha, I yeah. guess, in some regards. So right. That, Although it probably still, I mean, you know, we're always going to have the same drives and desires. I mean, that's like the Burning Man model. Like you can have a corporate sociopath. You send him to Burning Man, he's going to put on a pink tutu and he's going to start picking up cigarette butts uh-huh. off the ground to make himself look better. You know, it, it, it's what the reward system is, you know. Anyway, so, so that, 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 I guess, really interests me is how, how easy it is to, um, you know, create a different social um, construct um, where the reward system changes and people just adapt automatically, right. you know, because uh, everybody wants the same thing. They want love, they want approval, they want connection, you know, um, and so on. So yeah, so Tamara developed a whole bunch of social tools. One of them is called the forums. They create a circle. Everybody in the community comes together. People go in the middle of the circle and they act out their relationships or, or you know, with other members. So things that are made, you know, kind of um, that are secret or hidden for the most part in, in normal society are there very much like expressed mm-hmm. to just get them out, you know, even like deviant desires or... They, they even have a whole system where, like, um, the younger people in the, tr- in, the, in the community will have an older um, person who's kind of, like, their confidant and, and, and can also, like, if they want to sleep with somebody, their kind of older person can go and say, 
you know, can they can, can send, deliver a message to that person <laughs> if they want to have a meeting or something. Yeah, interesting. You know, or if they have a fantasy, like if they want to have sex uh -huh. with somebody blindfolded so they never even see the person, uh -huh. you know, that can be kind of arranged for them, uh -huh. you know. Well, I think it's important to to survey and look at all of these different ways of life. I mean, we're so myopic, particularly in the United States, and we have this idea that this is how we live and, you know, this is the way it should be. And we need to open our eyes and understand that there are many, many different ways of living and and to, you know, remove our, our judgment about these other ways and try to examine them more objectively and, right. and learn, learn from, you know, consistencies or what's working with other cultures. And to the extent that that can be incorporated, even on the personal level, if not the local level, and then beyond, I think is a worthwhile pursuit and discussion. Yeah. I mean, I think somehow like, um, untangling sexuality, um, you know, create, creating a system where, you know, particularly for younger people, maybe, there's more options and less hang-ups mm -hmm. could have a lot of benefit because um, I think a lot of energy uh, gets, gets kind of like if I, you know, I grew up in New York and going to the East Village and bars on the weekend, you see everybody, you know, thousands and thousands of people, you know, getting hammered to try to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's such an incredible waste of, of, of energy and time. It's like all that extra energy that could be going into, I don't know, you know, going out and, right. and, and, and planting, you know, forests or... or you know, re re repairing wetlands or something mm -hmm. is, is being wasted in, in a uh, kind of um, antiquated uh, construct, you right. know, or, 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 or that, that um, you know, I think we could, we could heal or ameliorate. Interesting. Have you ever been to Domenher in Italy? I haven't gone to Domenher. Yeah, you're familiar with it? Yeah, of course. Julie's been there. You there? Yeah, she's yeah. over there. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, it's its own basically culture in the middle of northern Italy. They have their own currency and they have they've built these temples. No, and, I know. And they, don't, they don't really, they used to have online the pictures from Atlantis because apparently they have an esoteric um, physics where they yes. send people mm -hmm. time traveling back 100,000 or 800,000 right, years right, in right. the past to figure out where we went off the wrong, where we got on the wrong timeline to see if we can like figure it out. It's a good, I like it. It's like an occult uh, mystery uh, story. Yeah, mystery very, much so, yeah. very much so. Very much so. Cool, man. Well, I think that that's a good place to... Uh, wrap it up all right Thanks i really appreciate much. yeah i really appreciate uh your time you're if, a fascinating uh, and inspiring person thanks um my website i guess is danielpinchbeck.net people could mm -hmm. come up and sign up and get on my mailing list or something like that and you're to. on twitter same daniel uh, twitter, Pinchbeck, am, am facebook twitter all the all, all the, that all, all the places exactly. and uh and evolver.net yeah, yeah evolver.net still? is still going i mean i'm not actively involved with it but it's reality sandwich is still going and hopefully more things to come. Are you uh, are you doing some public speaking lately? Um, speaking at well, I'm, I mean, uh, I don't know when you're airing this, but the Envision Festival uh, end of April in uh, London, the Breaking Convention, uh, which I think is in July, um, and I'm sure there'll be other stuff. Soho House in London at the beginning of April. Oh, cool. Yeah, is that all on your website? People want to. No, check it probably out. isn't. I probably should put it up. You probably should. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'll put it in the show notes for, <laughs> all right, cool. for this, and you can check that out. So, all right, man. Thanks. Thanks. Man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah. Peace. Plants. Oh yeah, take us out with the gong. All right, you guys. That's it. We did it. That's today's show. It's pretty interesting, right? Pretty provocative. Uh, really interested in what you guys thought of today's episode. So please uh, leave your comments in the comment section on the episode page at richroll.com. We'd really like to hear 
how you responded to Daniel and our conversation. Um, also, make sure you check out the show notes on the episode page, too. Uh, lots of great resources there for you guys to explore more deeply. Uh, once again, our new cookbook and lifestyle guide, The Plant Power Way, is now out. It's available at booksellers everywhere. People are digging it. We're so pleased uh, to be on the receiving end of so much love. And it's great to know that people are putting it to use and improving their lives through use of it. So check it out on Amazon. Use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com to pick it up if you haven't already. Uh, And also, maybe even better, go to your local independent bookseller. That's the best way, right? We've got to support our local independent bookstores if we want them to survive. Also, make sure you uh, tell your local librarian to order it if it's not already uh, in the catalog at your local library. Um, What else? Uh, Thanks for all the love, you guys. I appreciate you guys sharing this podcast, telling your friends about it, for using the banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases and uh, for spreading it around social media. Send your questions in for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. We're prepping some more of those shows, and they're, they're going to be coming out soon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @richroll, uh, and I'm going to start doing more Periscope Q&A chats. So if you're on Twitter, uh, keep an eye out for those. Uh, I'm having fun doing that. So for all the information, education, products, tools, resources, and inspiration you need to take your health, wellness, fitness, and self-actualization to the next level, go to richroll.com, check out our nutritional products, check out our education products, and check out our garments, all made with 100% organic cotton. Uh, And we got new garments coming soon, which is pretty exciting, some new designs and the like. So I'm excited about that. If you're into online courses, I've got two of those at mindbodygreen.com, The Art of Living with purpose and the ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition, both multiple hours of streaming content and online community, quite affordable as well. I think they're 99 bucks each. Great deal for all the information that I conveyed. And I put a lot of love and, and thought and effort into those courses. I'm really proud of them. So you can check those out. Thank you for supporting the show. Thanks for telling your friends. Thank you for sharing it on social media. Greatly appreciate it. And I'll see you guys next week. So have a great weekend. Have a great week. And I'll catch you later. Peace. Plants. Yay!